morning. Welcome. It's good to see you all this morning. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas with your family and your friends. But it's good to be here this morning as we continue in our study of John's Gospel. And with that, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. Advent is over, but we are continuing in this sermon series that we've, the entire thing we've entitled, I Am, as we look to see who John wants to emphatically reveal to us this one is, this this word, this word that has become flesh. Now you'll see up on the screen behind me the title for today's sermon as we are going to be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. Simply, kind of like a hashtag, I testify, something memorable, because we're going to see John now testify and bear witness to who this one is, who this coming one who he has baptized uh, in ministry. So that's what we'll be looking at today. And of course, the application is there as well. And maybe some of you have had the opportunity in the course of your life or career to be brought into a particular situation to where you were required to give testimony, to bear witness to a true set of facts. Maybe you were uh, an expert witness on a court case, I don't know, or simply uh, brought in to give an affidavit, but to testify to the truth. Maybe some of you went out and preached the gospel open air on a box or something like that. That helps us to understand what John is doing here. And then as far as application, what God is calling us to do as well, which is really follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist in general, in specific ways to how we're called to serve and give glory to God. And as we, as we consider John's uh, ministry, we look back a couple weeks into the prologue, verses 6 and 8, we see how uh, he refers to John the Baptist's role was to come and bear witness to the light. Well, that's actually, this today is the passage that verses 6 through 8 anticipate we're going to now study uh, this morning. And here's a passage you'll see on the screen from Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel is telling John's father about the miraculous birth and what his son would do for the Lord. And it ties into what we'll see today. Gabriel speaking, and he, John, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then related to that, we have our our sermon idea for this morning. You'll see that as well. The author continues his gospel account with two occasions on which John the Baptist faithfully bore witness to the light, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll examine both. Father, busy time of the year, a lot going on in all of our families' lives. My prayer is that, uh, that what we've worship, how we've worshipped you already this morning through song and through hearing your word and through prayer would have already served to calm our hearts, to bring our minds right here into the present where we open up your scriptures and we hear your perfect truth. During this time, Lord, let your spirit bring that truth out of the passage through the sermon to penetrate each and every one of our hearts, that you will speak to us, that you will grow us and teach us what you have for each of our families this morning. And of course, as always, if there's anyone here today, even our children, who don't know you, that you would plant gospel seeds, that you would water and bring about salvation, Lord, a harvest of salvation. 
and also bring a crop of obedience from those of us who are saved that we would be more willing than ever to leverage the positions and opportunities in our life to testify to the truth of your gospel, to the light, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the first occasion that we're going to see, I've entitled, you'll see this on the screen, Before Jerusalem's Finest. And I'll explain what that is here in a moment. But before we read the text, I just want to teach, share with you something I learned this week that you can be on the lookout throughout today's entire sermon in the passage. Uh, there are seven times in the passage where John uses the emphatic pronoun I. And I would have never known this, except I learned it, and so I'm teaching you. It's kind of neat. Each of those seven times, the fact that it's, that it's emphatic means that John is taking the lesser position, the lower position, and is a demonstration, again, of his humility uh, before God as, as, a glor- as a means to a glorious end. And so as we're, we're going through, just keep that in the back of your mind as we see these times, as he's continuing to de- demonstrate the humility of a servant of God. And of course, we'll make some application along those lines later. But let's jump right in, and we're going to read verses 19 through 28. So please go there in your Bibles and read along with me, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, why then are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now imagine the scene with me here. The people of Israel, the Jews, have, have now come through a time of 400 years. Now, several generations up until this generation we meet today. But for 400 years, over 400 years, God has been silent. There has been no prophet, no new revelation. And during that time also, there was a great expectancy that at any moment the Messiah would come. And a lot of that had to do with Roman oppression and just a desperate need for God to act, to move. And so now imagine that with that sense of expectancy in the air already, you have a man with all of the look and words of an Old Testament prophet. You can even read uh, the beginning of uh, 2 Kings, and it's the same description of Elijah you have with John the Baptist, their outfit and what they looked like and where they were. And so everyone gets excited. The people hurry out to where he's baptizing, and his ministry explodes, this ministry of repentance. Now imagine, too, the religious professionals in Jerusalem. They get word that someone's got a pretty popular ministry going on, and that's their territory. So, of course, they're going to head out and investigate and see what's going on out there and who this individual is, because they're also expecting a Messiah, especially the Pharisees. 
And there were certain popular characters associated with kind of the, the coming of the Messiah. There was the prophet. There was the Messiah himself. There was Elijah. So they want to go out and see who this one is and what's going on. And that's who I'm referring to as Jerusalem's finest. And we have this day here. And you'll see at the beginning of verse 19, that sets the, the tone for the entire passage, the testimony of John, the fulfillment of what John, the author, has already said about John the Baptist. And I want to point your attention to a word here in verse 19 as well, because we're going to see it a lot through the next year. In fact, 71 times, John uses the phrase, the Jews. Uh, now, sometimes it's positive, but most of the time he uses that negatively. Um, he, he uses it for those who made themselves the enemies and opponents of Jesus, and in this case, John the Baptist. Again, it's not anti-Semitism. John himself, the author, is also a Jew, but these were those in Israel who were antagonistic towards the work of God, and, and that's the case here. So the Jews sent a, a group, a team, a contingent from Jerusalem about 21 miles to the Jordan River to where John was baptizing, and they were made up of priests and Levites, which typically we associate with the Sadducees. Uh, we're, we already saw later in the passage that Pharisees were among this group as well. So they go as representatives to see what's going on, to see who this one is. Now, time for confession. And you can raise your hand, but you don't have to. How many of us have been pulled over by the local authorities? And I'm just going to say I was pulled over even recently when they changed the speed limit on Jackson Grove Road, uh, but thankfully I didn't get a ticket. First time in like 25 years, though. But nonetheless, I have been pulled over. And what's the first question that the local law enforcement asks us when they pull us over? Can I see your ID? Do you have ID? And that's essentially what's happening in this first pericope here. They've pulled John the Baptist over, and they're coming along inside and say, hey, do you have some ID? We want to see who you are. Or do you have a permit for that, right? They're, they're doing a, uh, an ID check. And we're going to see here a, a series of five questions and five answers. It's a great classic back and forth. And here's where we see a lot of those emphatic eyes from John the Baptist. And so you'll see the first question that they ask here who are you? Now, they didn't ask him if he was the Christ or the Messiah, but obviously in how they asked it, John knew what they meant. So his first answer is, I am not the Christ. Now, uh, I don't know if, if this happened to you, but me growing up in, in my version of Christianity, I really truly thought Christ was Jesus' last name, like Smith or Jones. I didn't know. And of course, you guys know it's his title. Christ is the Greek version of the Jewish Messiah. Um, so it's the anointed one. And the anointed one uh, comes from the prophets, all, a lot of those prophecies, even referred to as David, kind of the kingly Messiah who would come. And so there was great anticipation. And so that's what's behind that first one. And he's like, no, I am not the Messiah. And then they ask him another question. Well, are you Elijah? And we have just saw in Luke 1, I've also showed you in Malachi 4, that one of the John the Baptist prophecies was Elijah. Now, it seems like Scripture contradicts himself, because even Jesus will say, I think in Matthew 11, that John was the fulfillment of the prophet Elijah, but John himself doesn't realize that. He doesn't realize that he's that one. Again, he's taking the, the humble position, and, and literally, he was not Elijah, right? We don't have reincarnation. He simply, so, so in one sense, he wasn't Elijah, right? He wasn't. Elijah was still in heaven. He was simply the fulfillment, one like Elijah, but he probably doesn't realize that about himself, so he's like, no. And then they ask him after that, are you the prophet? 
It's interesting, John doesn't say which prophet, right? There were a lot of prophets. He knew exactly the prophet they were talking about, and that's from Deuteronomy 18, the second Moses. Um, And so he says, no, I'm not him as well. And see, these were the three big names that the Jewish uh, authorities, the religious authorities were looking for, who they had connected with kind of the end times, the the God coming to act. It was either going to be the Messiah, or it was going to be Elijah, or it was going to be the prophet. And there's no evidence that they had figured out that actually the prophet and the Messiah were the same person. They still thought they were three separate individuals. And so John has essentially failed the ID check. He doesn't check out at all. So who in the world is he? And you can see uh, in verse 22, the Pharisees, this group, Pharisees among them, start to get frustrated. John is a puzzle. How many of you ever played with a Rubik's Cube? I got a couple of them for Christmas when I was a kid once, and my mind doesn't work that way, right? I, I, try, I would get so frustrated with this puzzle, I'd actually take it apart and put it back together with the colors on all the different sides. It was frustrating. And so he is a puzzle. He's like a Rubik's Cube to these religious officials. They can't figure him out. And you see in verse 22, like, come on, man, you got to help us out. We need to take back to those who sent us the correct identity of who you are. So they finally get smart with question number four, and you see that uh, in verse, at the end of verse 23, I'm sorry, end of verse 22, what do you say about yourself, right? Then who are you? And he tells them by quoting Isaiah 43. Again, we looked at that last week or a couple weeks ago, another one of the John the Baptist prophecies. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so a uh, great verse here. This verse is actually in all four gospel accounts associated with John the Baptist. But again, scholars believe he's taking the humble path. I'm just simply a voice. I'm no one special. If I were to rename the sermon, I would probably name it, uh, again, a means to a glorious end. That's all John was. He knew his position. He was nobody. Nobody special at all. Just a man doing what God had called him to do. And so he tells them that. I am just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, quickly, the the make straight there, too, is important. In fact, let me tell you the context of, of Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 40, what that is is God is prophesying how he's going to level out a path from the east, think Babylon, back to Israel to deliver God's people, kind of like a second exodus. And again, that's prophetic of of what's coming for Israel, which hadn't happened yet in Isaiah's day, which was the Babylonian captivity. But for our purposes here, it's being fulfilled also in the coming of the Messiah, the true exodus, like we talked about last week. So there's this leveling, just think of a steamroller, clearing a straight level path from the east all the way back to Jerusalem. That's kind of the context of the passage But also, in terms of making straight, we have to keep in mind that these Pharisees, these very religious officials, the Sadducees as well, who have been sent, have worked so hard to make God's way crooked. They have made it crooked. And a lot of what John's ministry, and of course Jesus' ministry would be, would to reteach the true salvation, the true ways of God, apart from the hypocritical traditions of man. So a lot of the Messiah's ministry indeed would literally make straight what man has been making crooked uh, for far so long. Again, we'll talk about that later. But here's a passage from Mark's gospel which reminds us of how these religious professionals had made the way of the Lord crooked. And this is Jesus talking 
uh, to some Pharisees there. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And so important for us to keep that in mind as we look at John's uh, testifying here uh, in this passage. But as we continue, we see a fifth question. And this fifth question comes from the Pharisees who are among this group. And it's, it's in direct keeping with what we know about the Pharisees. Uh, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They thought of themselves as very special, closest to God, those who kept the law perfectly. And it was their job to make sure you did as well. And so you can imagine them. They're getting frustrated with whoever's asking the question so far. And they're like, listen, guys, clearly this guy doesn't check out. Let's ask him the real question, why are you baptizing, right? Again, think in terms of that, that permit. Or if you're getting pulled over, right, you, you show the, the, the cop your ID. The next question he'll ask is, well, why were you doing 50 in a school zone? Or where are you going so fast? He'll go from identification to activity, and that's what they're doing here. Your ID doesn't check out. You're clearly not the Christ. You're clearly not Elijah. You're clearly not the prophet. Then who do you think you are? doing activity that only they can do, which is baptizing people. Again, baptism was in practice in Judaism, but it was really reserved just for Gentiles who converted into Judaism. Here, he's baptizing Jews. That's not supposed to happen because we're the good ones. We're not dirty like Gentiles. So they're now concerned with his activity, and they want to know why he's doing what he is doing. And this is where we see him, again, bear witness to the ministry that God has given them. And you see in verse 26, he says, I baptize you with water. Now that anticipates, in the grammar here, it anticipates a greater baptizer. But see, John's not gonna tell us about that until verse 33, so we gotta wait. But what he is gonna tell us is about the greatness of this one, the real baptizer, the one who we'll learn later baptizes with fire. But he says, I baptize with water. Again, a humble position. And then we see, again, the tragedy we learned a couple weeks ago in verse 11. But among you stands one who you do not know. One who you do not know. One thing that's interesting about John is he doesn't show us where John the Baptist actually baptizes Jesus, like the other gospel writers. It's already happened. By the time we get to this day, it may have happened weeks before, okay? So Jesus is already there. He's already been identified through baptism, And John's pointing out the fact that he's here and you guys don't even know him. That tragedy, that tragedy. And it it struck me this week that the forefathers of this religious group who were in the temple the day the wise men showed up even gave the wise men the prophecy about Bethlehem but wouldn't go out then to see the birth of this special child. And yet here, these guys go all the way to John because they're just upset that he's moving into their territory with his baptizing. They didn't even know him. And then look what John says about this one. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not unworthy to tie. The greatness of this one. What's interesting about that statement there is rabbis did not charge their disciples for teaching them. But the disciples were expected to do a lot of menial jobs to serve the rabbi, right, as a way to pay him off, uh, just to show appreciation for the time that they would invest in them. But there was one job that even a disciple would never do, and that is untie the strap of their rabbi. That alone was reserved 
for slaves, for servants. In fact, a rabbi said that back in 250 BC. So what he's saying here is I'm, not, I'm below a slave. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of this one sandal. That's how great Jesus Christ is. It's incredible. And then we get one final verse here, which is kind of a, a, a location marker for us here, verse 28. He's at a place called Bethany. We don't know anything about this Bethany. It's not the same Bethany that we'll learn about later in chapters 11 and 12 where Lazarus lived and his sisters, Martha and Mary, because that was only two miles from Jerusalem, really close. This Bethany was simply um, a place on the other side of the Jordan River adjacent Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was about 21 miles away from this location, but it was just on the other side of the Jordan. That's where he's baptizing. So if you can imagine that east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan, uh, that's where John was ministering here. So a few application points uh, for us before we go to the second section. First of all, you remember last week, if you were with us, that I talked about how the glory of Christ in the first advent, is connected with his humility. Again, think Psalm 2 and the great hymn that we read through. His humility in giving up his exalted position in heaven to come to take on human form and die uh, the death he died for us as as a servant. And I, I bring us back to that because in John, we have a shining example of what that looks like for a human being. Again, a model for us to follow in his footsteps, taking on Uh, the form of a servant. Because we all, again, we're Protestants. We love the Reformation. We talk about the five solas and, of course, that final one, sola de gloria, for the glory of God, right? It's even in our vision statement. It's in our mission statement. We want to do everything we can do as a church to glorify God. I know you do in your homes as well, as husband, as wife, as parents, and in your workplaces. But just a reminder that if we truly want to glorify God, it's going to look like this. It's always going to look like humility, and following the example of Jesus Christ. And so as a visual for that, think of the foot washing, right? The foot washing of Jesus. We'll see that later in John chapter 13. And on the screen behind me, you'll see the passage. Uh, When Jesus got back up to the table, he had finished washing all of their feet, even Judas's feet, which I can't get past that. It's amazing. And look what he tells his disciples there. For I have given you an example that also that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. And so John the Baptist fulfills that and gives you and I a model to look to, how we can follow in his footsteps, and really begin to pray, Lord, how can I humble myself to serve and glorify you in the various roles and opportunities you've given me? John was successful in what he was given, And we don't have John's job, right? We have a different job. Ted's got a job, and each of you has a job, specifics. But this is a model of how we can humble ourselves. So I want to circle back to that uh, this week with that first point. Another thing, too, is let's consider the two main ways that we've seen John bear witness so far. Uh, The first way, you don't really think of it, but when he denied that he was the Christ, he was actually bearing witness to Christ by saying, I'm not him. And so that was an example of him faithfully bearing witness or testifying to Jesus. And I mention that for our sake, just to remind us that when we look to the mission fields, 
Think of the people who you're praying for them to be saved. Think about your lost neighbors. Think in general just of the, the people in Blue Ridge, the, the you know, 60% that Robert faithfully reminds us about who are unchurched here in Blue Ridge. They don't need you. They don't need me. They don't need the church at Blue Ridge. They don't need our missional community groups first and foremost. They need Jesus Christ. And we just have to guard, and, I, and I'm speaking to myself here, I've got to guard against that, that it, you know, it's him that they need. I have to make sure that I don't become an obstacle and put myself in a position uh, as their savior. You know what I mean? They need Jesus Christ. Our job, again, just like John's, is just simply a means to a glorious end. Now, does God want to use our missional community groups? Does he want to use our church? Does he want to use you and me? Absolutely. But what the folks need who are not here right now is they need Christ first and foremost. So let's turn that into a prayer request. Lord, how can I be a means to that glorious end in the lives of my neighbors or in the lives of the people I'm already praying for, uh, for salvation? And then the second uh, witness or, or testimony that he's already given is the make straight the way of the Lord. And I mentioned that to you as well because for over 2,000 years, Christianity has been crushing it when it comes to making the straightways crooked. Right? We do a great job. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Baptist, any denomination, for the most part, Christianity has been a failure and has gotten off the tracks. And it's only by the grace of God that it continues, which is one of the reasons we have to continue to send missionaries and plant churches because what we start eventually becomes corrupted. And so I mentioned that to you just as a reminder. We've got to work to make sure everything we're doing is biblical and for his glory. That's why we, Robert and I worded the vision and mission statements the way we did, so that it's always about him, and it's always about us joining him in his mission to fulfill the Great Commission and to save those who are lost. And so just a reminder for us, and one of the things that, that I, I thought of when I, when I thought of the crooked, you ever get that shopping cart at the grocery store that has the one wheel that just wants to go left, and you gotta keep, that's what happens, and we have to do all we can to make sure we keep the way of the Lord straight and not allow it to get crooked with the human traditions that we always tend to infuse into uh, his glorious bride. And here's a passage from 2 Timothy just to remind us of the reality we're always gonna live with. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season when it's popular and out of season when it's not popular. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And we can't give in when that time comes. We cannot give in. So just some practical reminders for us today. So let's look at the second section. We've seen uh, his testimony before Jerusalem's finest. And now we're going to see the next day his testimony before his followers. So look with me. We're going to pick back up in verse 29 and read through 34. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So just a couple things here as we continue. Uh, First off, you'll see verse 29, the next day. So this is the very next day from when John got into his conversation with Jerusalem's finest. Leon Morris actually believes, I don't know if this is true, but he believes that what we have at the end of chapter one and even the beginning of chapter two is what he calls one glorious week, where day one was before the Jerusalem's finest, day two we're looking at here, you know, and then day three and four and five with his disciples that you'll see at the end of chapter one. In fact, Robert will preach next week, the end of chapter one. Some of my favorite passages where we get, where we get a glimpse of, of the calling of a few disciples that we don't get in the other gospels. And then even he thinks that day six and seven is the wedding at Cana. Not sure if that's true, but nonetheless, John will do this in his gospel. He'll slow down and just give us a few days in a row, and then all of a sudden he'll skip months and years to get to something else. So uh, we have here at least two days in a row. And this day, he's no longer talking to the, the religious people from Jerusalem. He's now talking to uh, his followers. So the people who are some of his disciples, maybe people in standing in line to be baptized, but there's obviously a crowd, and he's testifying once again, and we see this beautiful thing that he says. It says here that Jesus is, was approaching. That's what coming toward him means. He was simply approaching. So just imagine John's already baptized him, probably a week, two, maybe more earlier, and as he's talking, it's like, oh, in fact, look, here he comes. Here he is, the very guy I'm telling you about. And he points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. Obviously, a, a theologically rich phrase. I've got to spend some time here. Just a few things. When, when you look at the Lamb of God, one thing that I learned this week that I didn't know, but John's the only New Testament author that uses lamb to refer to Jesus Christ. But, uh, so, so, the scholars point out, which is very important, is that nobody that was listening or in that day would have ever heard that phrase before. Again, for us, it's in our Christian encyclopedia. We know it really well. We sing songs about it. But for the audience here, that would have been a foreign phrase. Now, obviously, you know the Old Testament is full of a lot of imagery when it comes to sheep and lambs and goats. And so, uh, he obviously has that packed into the phrase. And I put a slide together with a few of those up on the screen. You'll see there, Genesis 22, we have the ram caught in the thicket. Again, think, and in every case, this is substitution. This is substitution and sacrifice. And we know previews for the gospel, previews for the coming Messiah. You have the Passover lamb. You have the two goats on the Day of Atonement. Uh, you have, uh, obviously, the, the servant song in Isaiah 53, the lamb led to the slaughter. And even fast-forwarding to Revelation, which John also wrote, uh, the lamb who was slain. So, so obviously, we see where he's going with this. We know what he's talking about. He's talking about the substitutionary sacrifice of this one, pointing forward even to the cross that would come. But, but for the original audience, they would have been like, what? Never heard that before. Completely new. And then you'll see the job as the lamb that he takes away sin, uh, takes away, literally just removes to, to carry off, almost like the scapegoat, to carry off into the wilderness. And then you'll notice sin is singular. It's not plural. So again, this is talking about edemic sin. This is talking about uh, the sin that came through the curse that, that we inherit from Adam, each and every one of us, the sin nature that produces the sin's behavior. And then you'll see the word world. Now, we know that universalism is not biblical. So 
this isn't universalism, but it's simply telling us that it's not just about the Jews. It's for the entire world, that what he's doing is for Jew and Gentile alike. So I wish I could spend some more time, but an incredible testimony there of who this one is. And as we continue uh, reading, he reminds them of what he's already told us about how uh, the primacy of Jesus's ministry and you'll see that more and more as John talks about how it's his time now to, to fade off into the background as Jesus grows in importance, that it's all about him. And even though John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, he tells him that he was before him, the preexistent one. And then you see him in verse 31. And this is really important. Uh, focus your attention on verse 31 because we see here that even the baptismal ministry of John was a means to an end. See, the other gospel writers focused mostly on his baptism, his ministry of baptism, and it was great in importance, calling Israel to repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah. But what John, the author, tells us by including this in here is that the baptismal ministry itself was a means to an end, so at that moment in time, John could point to people who the Messiah was, and you'll see it for, for yourself. I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Very important passage uh, here in the midst of this. So incredible uh, truth for us to consider and, and think about that as we continue. And then the last thing we want to look at is verses 32 to 34. And what we have here is he is now telling them about some things that happened during the actual baptism. So the baptism happened a long time before, and he's giving us some beautiful highlights. And I just want to simply point your attention to one truth here. In these passages, as he's recollecting for the group uh, that day back a couple weeks ago when he baptized Jesus, you see all three persons of the triune Godhead here in this passage. I don't know about you, but I get excited when I see all three persons of the triune Godhead together in one verse or one passage, which, by the way, happens a lot in the New Testament. And you'll see here him telling. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven. Circle the word like there, like a dove. It doesn't say that there was an actual dove. It just says like a dove. Like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, I told you guys last week that the word saw, at least one word that translates saw, uh, can be beheld. In fact, I think that's the better translation, beheld. That's that word. John only uses the word beheld for f literal, physical things, eyewitness accounts, no visions. So that tells us this isn't a vision. He literally saw this with his own eyes. He saw the Holy Spirit of God descend like a dove onto this one. And then he tells us about how he knew to look for that. He says, I myself didn't know who it was. I didn't know who the Messiah was. But he who sent me, that's God the Father, he who sent me to baptize with water said ahead of time, hey, when you see uh, this event happen, when you see the Spirit of God descend, obviously that's not normal. So it's going to be a big deal for John. That's the sign for you that the guy you're baptizing is the chosen one, is the, chosen one, is the Messiah, is the Son of God. And it's just incredible here to see him explain and give testimony he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he, and by the way, here's where we, where we see the greater baptizer, this is he who baptizes, not with water, but the Holy Spirit. And then John puts his stamp on it, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What an incredible testimony 
we have from John the Baptist. Again, fulfilling his role, uh, his seat on the bus, what he was sent to do was simply mark out for Israel the chosen one, the Messiah. And what you'll learn next week that's really interesting, and we only get this from John, that two of Jesus' 12 disciples were disciples of John the Baptist first. Andrew was one. We'll get him by name. The other one we don't get by name, but we'll, and, and Robert will share this with you, but we assume it's John, the author of the gospel. So it's very likely that the author of our gospel was an eyewitness to all of this and was amongst the crowd of followers who John is testifying John the Baptist is testifying to on this very day. And that's pretty exciting. Again, we don't need that because the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. But it's also somewhat exciting uh, to think about that and think of the possibilities there. And here on the screen you'll see uh, from Matthew 3, Danny read verses uh, 4 through 10. Here's uh, verse 11 that follows uh, where John says to the crowd there, maybe the same occasion, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And of course, we know that's referring to salvation, to regeneration, to being born again, which our water baptism then symbolizes. Uh, but Jesus definitely has the greater baptism. And we'll talk more about that, obviously, as we get to chapter 3 with that great passage. But a, a few final application points and then we will be done for the day. The first one is this. I have rounded up and put in one place all of the incredible titles for Jesus Christ in John chapter one. You'll see a lot more of these uh, next week, but look on the screen behind me and look at these beautiful titles that we, and this is all in one chapter. This is all in just John chapter one. The Word, the Light, the Only Begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the Only Begotten God, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Him who Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Joseph, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. That is incredible. And it gets us started right into what this gospel account's all about. Who does John the author want to make very clear we know who this one is? I am the God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, the second thing is this. We talked about the Isaiah 43 passage and what John's ministry was. Again, clearing obstacles for the Messiah to come. And I, I know, again, thinking personal evangelism, thinking your and my responsibility to share the gospel, one of the questions we need to ask when it comes to strategy and effectiveness is, in prayer is, God, what obstacles can I help clear out of the way? to share the gospel with the people God's put on my heart. What are some obstacles? What are the problems? And that's a great place to, to start, even with pen and paper, and saying, Lord, this person I want to share the gospel with, what are, what's keeping me from it? What's some obstacles either on my part, on their part, or just other one, obstacles in the middle that's nobody's fault? Write them down and begin to pray and think how to clear away obstacles so that we can share the gospel with those who we know to be lost, whether it's a neighbor, friend, loved one, uh, even someone you know who's in the church who doesn't know the Lord. Uh, the, the third and final thing I want to talk about, too, very simply, is, again, as we leave John the Baptist, we've been talking about him now for several weeks, as we leave his ministry, we'll come back to him in, in chapter 3, actually, but he faithfully leveraged his position that God gave him for the gospel. He was faithful. He could walk off the scene and say, hey, he must increase, 
It's my time to decrease. I've done my job. I want to say that too. I want to get to heaven and, and have Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. So the question before us is, how is God calling each of us individually and specifically to leverage the positions he's put us in for the gospel? And it's going to take some creativity. It's going to take some prayer. It's going to take some conversations maybe in the cell group level or the missional community group level. But how is God calling us to leverage our position and our role to do our part in testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both from revelation like John does, but also from experience like John does as well, and how God has rescued each of us miraculously. So let's look at one final passage before we finish that encourages, encourages us along those lines. And this is in First Peter, where he writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So great encouragement from Peter for us today as we follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist in testifying to Jesus Christ and his wonderful gospel.